Hi, everyone. Aubrey Holmes of the High Mod Quartet here. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the High Mod Quartet's podcast. Today, we'll be talking about our upcoming concert this Friday, October 5th, on the Maryland Horn Museum Concert Series in Bradford, Pennsylvania. But first, we'd like to talk a little bit about Marilyn Horn, who she is, the museum and concert series, and where our quartet plays into all of this. Joining me will be Matthew Heilman, who's the current arts programming manager and director at the Maryland Horn Museum and Exhibit Center in Bradford, Pennsylvania. Okay, um, Matthew, thank you for taking the time to talk to me, to me today. Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm glad to do it. So I guess um, I'm going to jump right into it. Um, so I'd like to start with, I think, the obvious question here. And who is Marilyn Horn? Maybe tell us a little bit about her upbringing and then her career. Well, Marilyn Horn uh, was was born in Bradford, Pennsylvania, in 1934, mm-hmm. and she is she's still alive. Um, she lives in Santa Barbara, California now. She um, a number of years ago had decided that it was time to start thinking about where to donate her archive, and uh, so it, it sort of made sense for her to look at her hometown, which of course is Bradford, where the museum is located. And that's how that began. Marilyn was, um, she she went on to become one of the most famous mezzo-sopranos in the world. She was, you know, very, very well known to people, particularly in the, uh, in the, in the 70s through the 90s. You know, she brought opera into people's living rooms because she was frequently on TV. Um, she appeared on Johnny Carson something like seven or eight times. She was on David Letterman and, and um, you know, she, uh, she was on Sesame Street twice. She was, uh, she was really an interesting and still is, of course, but, but, but a very interesting person in addition to being an extremely talented mezzo-soprano. Yeah, I think, <clears throat> yeah, I guess that's sort of then I would ask, what, yeah, I mean, you know, I grew up with, with that in my house. My mom's a mezzo-soprano, and so Marilyn Horn was, I, I'm very familiar with the name and a lot of the performances, um, especially since my mom was studying in the 70s, 80s, you know, right in smack in the middle of her career. Um, so I guess I, I would follow it up with what, what impact do you think she had on the classical music world? Well, you know, there were, there were two things that Marilyn did that were, that were so important to classical performance and particularly with, with opera. One was that, you know, when you think about, uh, Rossini and I, I tell the story a lot, you know, prior to Marilyn Horn, when Rossini was performed, it was almost exclusively um, Barbarousville. I mean, that was pretty much it. No one was really familiar with his body of work. And it was mainly because um, the, the classical music world had sort of given up on the notion that there were people out there who had the vocal range to do some of these roles that were written, you know, either in the end of the 18th century or the early 19th century. Um, so Marilyn actually, she resurrected in many ways Rossini's full body of work. Um, so that was really the first thing that she did, which is extremely important. And then the other thing was is that there were also many people in the classical music world that sort of felt like Baroque opera was was dead because so many of those roles had been written for the castrati, um, and, you know, they said, well, you know, that, that was an entirely different voice structure that no longer exists. And again, she having that ability to go high and to go low and to hit those mid-range notes, uh, 
And then, and then the other thing, of course, was, well, so what if they were written for male roles? You know, this is what the theater is all about, is the suspension of disbelief. So why can't I play a male role? And so that those are really two of the, of the biggest things that she did, in addition to, of course, having this very unique voice that allowed her to do that. Yeah, that's really, <clears throat> that's really interesting. I mean, I guess, so then I would say what's, you know, talking about the, the museum itself, it's it's connected to the University of, of Pittsburgh Radford. How, how did the idea of the museum come about? And uh, I guess what does it offer to the community or anyone visiting Bradford as far as, you know, exhibits and activities are concerned? Well, the, the museum, it, it was sort of like two things were happening at once. The, uh, the president of the university at that time, who just retired this last year, Livingston Alexander, he had the idea of, of wanting to approach Marilyn about, about the possibility of her donating her archive to the university and, and creating a museum. Um, he wasn't quite sure how to go about that. And at the same time, she was thinking that she wanted to donate her archive to the to the university or to Bradford. And so somewhere in the middle, those, those two ideas collided and the idea became a reality. Um, to me, what's so important about the museum being where it's at is that we are in a very rural area. I mean, we're, we're located about four miles south of the New York border. Um, we're about an hour and a half from Buffalo. So that would be the next nearest major so, city. So pretty, pretty west, west, north PA. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we are we are definitely out there. Um, we are we're in an area where certainly opera is not something that is that is part of the vernacular of a young person's upbringing, um, which is interesting because way back when, I mean, in the 1930s, when when Marilyn was was little, you know, this is a very strong Italian community out here, and opera and classical music was actually quite popular at that time. Um, Bradford at one time was, was, was rumored to have had something like eight uh, theaters. They called them opera houses, but they were, you know, sort of like, think about, you know, sort of Broadway style, those, those, if you can picture in your mind, those old school theaters right. with, you know, sort of gilded balconies and all of that. Um, so, of course, those days are long gone. And, and I think that for Marilyn, a lot of it was, I often say that the next Marilyn Horn could be here now. But that, but that young person might not be introduced to opera any other way except to come into the museum. Um, the space is really, it's very colorful. It's, it's a state-of-the-art facility. There's 19 interactive exhibits, a beautiful documentary film. It's about a 12-minute film that was, that was done exclusively for us. So when a person comes through the museum, you know, they really are sort of, it's, it's not just about Maryland, which of course it is, but it's about the world of opera and they're immersed in all of these costumes and color and music and sound. And it's, it's, I'm hoping that it, it will really sort of strike a nerve. And it's not just for our region. I mean, opera, as everyone knows, classical performance in general. I mean, it's, we're in a challenging we're in a challenging time right now. You know, uh, people are sort of wondering, you know, who are the donors of tomorrow? You know, are we going to be able to continue with younger audiences? You know, there's a lot of a lot of competition with the pop world. So it's what we're doing, I think, is very, very important to to help keep that that alive and keep it sort of relevant for, for young people. Yeah, I think I've I think I, I get what you're saying. I mean, I've seen a lot of uh, sort of 
things pop up like this more and more, especially in what used to be the more uh, industrial America where there used to be money. And then, of course, when, you know, the industry dro dropped out, you know, areas like uh, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Detroit. Um, but there's definitely I feel like there's actually a real surge of young people coming back. And with that art and 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 different things. So it's 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 interesting to see a lot of these things coming back. And it's definitely it's again why I wanted to do this interview, because <clears throat> It's it seems on on a map so random that this museum would be there, but you know it makes sense obviously biographically and such with with her. But it's it's really awesome that it's just there, even though it's it's not New York City, you know, or Philadelphia. Well, and and, and that's what's interesting about it is that is that she had the opportunity. I mean, the National Archives had approached her, Smithsonian had approached her, um, Carnegie Hall really wanted it. You know, the Lincoln Center collections wanted the archive for obvious reasons. Um, she was, she did so many performances at, you know, Carnegie Hall, Lincoln Center, and, and her program is, is linked to Carnegie Hall. Um, but she, she was, she was concerned that, that the archives would sort of get absorbed into these massive collections like so many of them do and not be seen by people. And then, and then I think also, you know, she just really felt that it needed to be in her hometown, you know, in the sort of the birthplace of her and her career. You know, so and it's interesting. I mean, I think I think what what Heimat is doing, you know, you guys, you really are the, the, the future of classical music. I mean, I think that it, when younger people see other younger people involved in this kind of thing, it, it sort of sparks a new interest. And to me, it's very refreshing. It's great to see young people, um, you know, that are really passionate about this. What's now coming an ancient art form when you think about it i mean you guys are performing music often that's you know two three hundred years old yeah i think yeah i mean so i think that gets me thinking about um what i want to ask you next and since you know it's a museum that's named after a famous musician i you know i think it comes as no surprise that you would host a classical music series especially you know one focused on opera and voice recitals as i know you have in the past and so of course this begs the question you know why is my quartet, the Heimat Quartet, playing a string quartet recital, you know, on a series that's that's usually geared more towards voice? And I, I guess what I'm asking, what what made the museum and the, the concert series that, that you run there decide to start, you know, expanding out to other forms of classical music, different types of ensembles and thing, instruments and things? Well, you know, when, when I when I first got to the museum, I mean, the museum opened in May of, of 2017, so I've only been there now about about a year and a half. That was one of the first things that, that I set about to do was, was I felt like the museum obviously needed to have some kind of a classical program that would be free and open to the public to help introduce and ease people into the idea of opera, you know, which is... I often say, you know, in many ways, I'm trying to to feed people spinach before we get to the dessert, you know, so I kind of have to go backwards. You know, uh, if you're not familiar with opera and you immediately just kind of bang people over the head with it, they, you know, they, they cringe a little bit. They, you know, I, I've heard it so much from people that they say, oh, well, you know, operas, it's very fancy and, and it's in languages that I don't understand. And, you know, there's there's so many there are so many things that that, that are that are. Um, myths that are really not true you know people don't realize that most of the time you go to see an opera there's there's a translation there you you know it's it's a play that's being sung you know these are classic stories so i i really wanted to tie music into the museum's programming to be able to offer something that was 
that was free that was very important because of where we're at people uh you know not necessarily being affluent and and you know being able to bring in new audiences um you know you all reached out to us and i assume which was actually really amazing i assume it was because you were searching for um, chamber concerts and chamber concert programs and and that Mm -hmm. that was really that was pretty awesome because I thought, well, gosh, you know, we've only been doing this the first year and obviously it's getting out there. And, and it's, it was, it meant that the message was, was actually going out beyond our region, which was pretty sensational. Um, but when, you know, when we talked about this and, and, you know, I had scheduled you, you guys for the first performance, it was then that it kind of dawned on me that I thought, gosh, you know what? I really need to focus the whole program on, youth and and younger artists because i think that that's really the connection you know if i can get young people in seeing young people really passionate about this i think then that's really where we'll have achieved our goal yeah and i i guess i would i would totally agree with that and i, I think tagging onto that you know i i've had some discussions with uh different artists of different ages uh, different ages different eras um, younger, older, and I think it's it's funny that a lot of us realize that, I mean, you know, even if the information is really good and you're getting really good teaching, oftentimes um, younger, very young kids or even teenagers, you know, they're so used to having a teacher that's much older um, that they don't always, you know, listen or want to do that. But when someone who's younger comes in that has the same information or just, you know, good information, they're more eager to do it because they you know, for whatever reason, they want to prove themselves as someone that's they consider, you know, closer in age. And so I, I was talking about this with a lot of older musicians, and we were agreeing that I think, you know, when you're a younger professional musician, you know, in your 20s, 30s, you know, I would even say 40s, <laughs> and 50s to me is young, but, you know, 20s, 30s, definitely. I, I think there's a real um, duty for us to use that time in our lives to go out to try to affect younger the younger generation and say, hey, you know, it's not just always, you know, for, you know, necessarily an older generation um, of people to listen to, you know, all ages can enjoy it and there's something there for everyone. So I, I'm really glad to see that you sort of have the same idea and same vision of that. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think in the old days there was, well, and even, even now there's this sort of cartoonish vision in a lot of people's minds about the, you know, the, 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 the classical performer, you know, being sort of this snobbish, highbrow person, you know, who's older and very erudite and all of these things and, and not relatable, you know, and, and, and that's, I think that's why, you know, for me, if I can, I mean, I had, I had a young lady last year who was 17 years old who performed for us. She did a, uh, she, she's been playing the, the concert harp since she was something like seven years old, which is, which is mind blowing to me because that means the instrument must have been two times her height. For, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty young to start, that's life. pretty young to start the concert. Uh. Oh, absolutely. Really <laughs> remarkable. And, but extremely talented. And she was, she was actually from her region and, and of all of the performances that I did last year, you know, that one really was the most popular and, and, and many, many people locally that did not get a chance to see it um, were just absolutely, um, they were, they were, they were so sad. And so I'm actually bringing her back this year. She's now, she was a senior in high school last year and now she's a freshman um, in, uh, in Virginia and she's actually coming back to perform for us in December for a Christmas concert. And, and I think that, you know, 
again, it's it's fabulous that we had such a great response, but I'm really hoping that I can get some young people in to, to see someone that looks just like them and say, wow, you know, huh, this isn't what I thought. Well, we, we know something's in the water in that region. Yeah, Marilyn Horn, this girl, and <laughs> probably many more to come, so... Um, you know, it, it's interesting you should say that, actually. Uh, you know, the, the, this whole region did actually uh, produce quite a lot of of performers. Uh, you know, Renee Fleming was actually born in Ridgeway, which is about 50, 50 miles to the south of us, which a lot of people don't realize that. They think that she's from Indiana, Pennsylvania, because she moved there when she was know a teenager but when you think about that and then and then ray evans who wrote white christmas and and other things he Mm -hmm. was actually from salamanca which is about 15 minutes away from us and then of course buffalo buffalo was extremely important for many many decades in in the musical world especially at at the beginning of the 20th century so yeah there really was something about this the circuit, if you will, that was producing a lot of, of really extremely talented people in the music world. Yeah, that's really interesting. Def- definitely, maybe, actually something in the water. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, I'd like, I'd like to sort of end with a, a personal touch question. Um, you know, from speaking to you before I actually pressed the, you know, the record on this interview, um, you seem so incredibly busy trying to manage not only the museum and all that it has to offer <clears throat> as well as you know an expanding concert series and for anyone listening that's ever thought about running a music series or just interested in the inner workings of it all what are you know some of the difficulties or tasks you run into and then i guess to follow that up what would what are the you know what are the rewards of running and putting on the series well i mean that's that's a really interesting point you know um first of all of course the rewards are pretty obvious because in the end you know everything always works itself out and and you always end up having these really fantastic performances and and for me um you know we really to to be able to to stand up in front of these audiences and introduce these these different artists that are coming in and to to see the excitement and the anticipation and and we have the most incredible audiences up here because they're just starved for it and they just love the idea that they can do this and it's right in their own backyard and they're so enthusiastic you know one of the things that that always happens and i always sort of warn the artists beforehand is is to let them know hey you know you're gonna have to hang around for a bit because they're going to want to descend on you and ask you questions and shake your hand and and it it, and you know it's interesting because in in the museum's newsletter last month i said that that recital is is really sort of one of the it's probably the the finest form of musical performance because of its intimacy it it really is what music was intended to be you know perform Mm -hmm. for small groups of people and the audience really gets to connect and you're not in a concert hall and and sort of removed from the performers so so there's really there's a there's so many rewards i mean the one thing i will say is that it's uh it's it's a lot of work i mean you know people they don't realize it's not quite so romantic it's a lot of paperwork it's a lot of contracts it's a lot of, of juggling of schedules and trying to you know, you can come up with the best laid plans, but then you've got to try to hope that all of these performers can fit into the schedule that you're trying to put together. Um, you know, it's it's it is no secret that I am a one man show. I mean, I could I could we could talk for hours about the rewards of working for a small museum um, because you really do get to make it your own, which is it's pretty amazing. But but it's uh, it's definitely something that you wear a lot of hats. You know, artists, 
you know, we, we, we talk a lot about artists, you know, and say, oh, well, you know, artists, they're not always easy to pin down. They're, they're not always business minded and all that sort of thing. But then I think sometimes, too, that we as the presenters, uh, you know, we need to kind of reverse that role, too, and, and maybe be a little bit more open and understanding that artists also have jam-packed schedules a lot of times and it's, it's not an easy thing you know you've got to rehearse you've got to think about the repertoire you've got to you know there's there's so many things that go into it so it's it's a really interesting relationship i have to say i, I never expected myself to be an agent <laughs> but i kind of feel that way sometimes when i'm organizing this we're really not this year i fairly much have all of the all of the shows booked through april but i want to get to a point where you know i always know from one year to the next what the next um, season is going to be but but that's that's a challenge that's not easy especially when you when when you're dealing with young artists right yeah i mean the 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 idea that you know concerts sort of pop up and come up out of nowhere is is definitely not true i mean you know most of these things like like you're just saying are planned a year if not more in advance i mean i know the big the big orchestras and the big um you know music performance centers often have you know multiple years planned ahead um so it's definitely an organizational nightmare but i like you were saying i think it's definitely definitely worth the rewards and it's definitely a lot of fun to come and and play on things like this so you know with that um you know matthew i'd like to thank you the museum and and the university of pittsburgh for allowing me to take the time to talk to you today about, you know, the Maryland Horn Museum in, in Bradford. And we're, we're really looking forward to playing on the series, which, you know, a reminder to those listening in the area is coming up this Friday, October 5th at 7.30 p.m. in the Harriet B. Wick Chapel, which is 300 Campus Drive on the campus of University of Pittsburgh, Bradford. So again, Matt, thanks. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and us today. Absolutely. We are excited to have you. We're looking forward to it. To see what the quartet is up to, be sure to visit our website, HeimatQuartet.com, H-E-I-M-A-T, Quartet.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Heimat.Quartet, as well as on Facebook. Don't forget to also check out the Maryland Horn Museum website at MarylandHorn.org, as well as on Facebook and Instagram for other upcoming events and happenings at the museum. I will also leave all of this information in the description of the podcast. Thanks for tuning in and hope to see some of you at the concert on Friday.